HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues. What? Cooking Issues? I've got uh-huh. issues with my voice today. Maybe it's because my voice buds are frozen. Do we have voice buds? Voice know. box. Frozen. It is snowing like a demon out, but I'm still coming to you live. A little late because the subway was shafting me. I Usually I'm late and it's my own fault. Right, Stas? Yep. Because I'm disorganized and a bad person all around. Today I'm actually going to blame the weather. Although... I noticed that uh, Jack made it here on time, as did Nastasha, so maybe... And they're both coming from Manhattan. That's right. Now yeah. I come from Manhattan. In fact, farther away. Were you guys on the L train today? Yes. Uh, no. Well, yes. F-tel. 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 That nice. was Ada L. Ada L. Yeah. Eh, I was just on... Whatever. People don't care. Call in your questions live to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Um, so we haven't actually have an event tonight, right, Stas? Do you think that thing's going to go on? Yeah. Yeah, really? Yeah, I talked to her. And she's like, we're going to do it? Oh, yeah. She's excited about a hot drink, everything. We don't have a hot drink. I told her we were, were going to work on one. So that's Yeah, we're, like, so we're doing this event tonight at a place called Feel NYC. Uh, and, you know, one of the partners. Feel uh, Food. Feel Food, yeah. But what's funny is is that our friend, who's, you know, one of the partners there, Gaylene Quinn, who runs uh, the Bogota Food and Wine Festival, or Wine and Food Festival, I can never keep it straight. She, uh, she's from Colombia, and she calls it Phil Food. Like Phil, like our friend Phil Bravo. Right. And she can't, like literally cannot hear the difference between the words Phil and feel. So we were, bust- we were busting her chops yesterday on the Phil feel phenomenon. Phil phenomenon. Phil, Phil phenomenon. Anyway, uh, but so I can't believe we're going to do an event with cocktails with people like arriving as it's like going, bu- dumping buckets of snow on us. But hey, that's life. That's how it's cut. We agree to do it. So we do what? We do, do it. it. We do it. All right. So we got uh, some questions in on knives. Um, dear Cooking Issues team, I have, a simple, I have a simple knife question. Although it's not so simple. As it turns out, most things are not so simple, right? Uh, on a whim, I recently bought a 10-inch uh, knife blank. The listing claimed it was a 100-year-old Sabatier blank. You know, Sabatier is like the French, uh, like the French knives. Yes. You familiar with those? Mm-hmm. Uh, Sabatier blank. You know, French, the French knife pattern, the, like the old Sabatier pattern is um, – <clears throat> 
different from the kind of standard German chef's knives that we all kind of grew up with. Like, you know, in the U.S., you know, if you, you know, if you're my age, um, you know, when you were younger, no one really had the Japanese or the Japanese Western stuff. They weren't very popular, I don't think, until probably the 90s, you know, like, uh, you know, some, somewhere in the late 90s, somewhere around there with the U.S. people. So, you know, in the in the early 90s, in the late 80s and early 90s, everyone wanted their their Henkels and their Wustoffs, right? And if you were going to get, you know, uh, a Japanese chef's knife to do Western-style work, most likely you'd get um, like a Mac. You know what I mean? The Macs that you would get, like, were semi- in you know in kind of the newer style Japanese Western pattern, but more you know akin to um, Japanese takes on Western knives. These are the ones I was kind of grew up being exposed to, but you know most of us uh, or most people I knew didn't really have a set of uh, French pattern knives. And the French pattern, the, the knife actual the the handle style and the and the shape of the knife a little bit different from the German style. I actually quite like it. So I so I in fact my favorite knife that I have that's a Western knife is because uh, I have my favorite Japanese knives. But my favorite uh, Western knife is in fact a ten inch Sabatier uh, knife, old, really freaking old carbon steel that I found at a uh, a flea market for two bucks. And it was, you know, it, it was rusty, but not like too rusty on the blade section. So it didn't have didn't have any real wasting or loss of metal in the actual edge. There was some pitting in the in the belly of the blade itself, but nothing on the edge. And so I was able to take it, and that thing, that thing's a demon. Except for people keep picking it up, using it without my permission, and then leaving it wet, which really makes me want to. People do not. First of all, don't use other people's knives, right? Like don't like unless you ask. Don't use somebody else's knife. Yeah, mm-hmm. straight up. Like, remember at the FCI, I had a set of Japanese knives, also carbon steel, so they rusted. And uh, some, and I had an Usuba, which is uh, you know the vegetable carving knife. It's got a very like flat uh, blade. It's it's meant for like turning daikons and stuff into those sheets. And you know, I bought it at a time when the yen was not quite as good as it is against the dollar now, so it wasn't ridiculously expensive. But still, I think it set me back like a hundred and something bucks, and, and now it's like a hundred and fifty or a hundred and eighty-five dollar knife or something like that. And uh, some some jackwad picked it up, thought it was, I guess, I don't know what the hell they thought it was, a cleaver, and they hit it into bones and took giant scallop marks out of it and made it entirely useless, and then left it wet. So I came back to my knife kit. They were kind enough to put it away, but they put it away. And left the, it ruined, completely ruined. I've never been so angry about something that's happened in a kitchen to my equipment ever. And I was like, why would anyone ever pick up somebody else's knife? But so this is the problem about having nice stuff in a communal environment. And you know, my home now, because you know, people come through it amounts in some ways to a communal environment. So anyway, it's hard to keep sometimes carbon knife uh, in good shape, which is wh- you know why you should I don't know, be protective of it. Is this making sense? It's not really the question, but <laughs> no. you ever had a carbon knife? No. The advantages of the carbon steel knives. Are they uh, ridiculously easy to sharpen? They take, you know, they they don't. Uh, they, they're a pain in terms of you know uh, taking care of them. Like whenever I use mine, I wipe it down after use and I put a thin coat of oil on it. You know, at the end of the night, uh, I wipe it after each use and then at the end of the night I put a thin coat of oil on it and put it away and it's been fine for years. But uh, it's just a little more use, but it takes an edge uh, extremely uh, well. I don't, I don't think the edge lasts longer than I mean the new the new steels the edge the new steels that they have are crazy you know uh, and so you know I'm sure from an actual performance standpoint but the fact that it takes an edge so easy 
so easily means that you you know you can a couple swipes on my on my uh, on my stone and the sucker is you know like a like a like a slicing machine. That's my favorite thing to slice steaks with. Steaks. Anyway, uh, okay. So uh, I bought a ten inch knife blank, and the listing claimed it was a one hundred year old Sabatier blank, recently discovered in a warehouse. Warehouse in how do you think you pronounce uh, like I, I should know because it's French, right? But uh, Tier, you think it's Tier? Pronounced written no in idea. English, Thiers. I but no I think idea. it's probably T A. How is it? How is it spelled? Thiers. Like F E A R S. No, like T H I E. Yeah, but oh, okay. I, I would guess it's like T A or something like that. T A. I don't know, but you never know with them, right? Yeah. Could they could be like douche? You're supposed to pronounce the R S on that one. You're like, uh, of course they don't understand douche. That's some, my favorite thing about French people is that they don't understand the douche insult. They're like shower, shower sack, vas. You know, uh, I'm not going into German anyway. I have problems. I've uh, got the pronunciation here. What is it? Tier. Mm. Tier. Tier. There you go. I was pretty close. Yeah. Uh, and made from virgin steel not used today. With this story, I couldn't pass it up. But I've been having trouble finding someone willing to transform the blank into a functioning knife. I was rebuffed. I like that. Rebuffed's a good word. I was rebuffed by one custom Brooklyn knife maker, and he could not point me to any other knife makers who would be willing to do the job. And he suggested that this require heat rather than just sharpening as well. Uh, I really have a good 8-inch chef's knife at home that I keep sharp with a DMT system. Those are the diamond uh, – anyway, uh, so I like them, DMT but, uh, system. So this is uh, not an especially urgent task. However, just holding the blank makes my current knife feel like safety scissors against Excalibur. So who and where do I go to turn this blank into a real knife, preferably here in New York? But maybe this task is not as simple as I had originally thought. Uh, and then uh, is pa- from Patrick, and um, he d- he put in the description from uh, from the eBay. And by the way, for those of you interested in this problem, the uh, the person who he bought it from, if you if you, if you look Sabatier blank, there are some eBay auctions currently from the same guy still up. You can still go buy one of these if this is something that uh, interests you. Um, yeah, it's not as simple as you thought. If you if you go look, if you guys look it up and you go on eBay and, and see what, you, what what we have here is you have a uh, a blank just after the forging step, right? So it's a it's a whole you know blank with the the metal entire, but it it it, uh, it looks like it's only gone through the first step. So what happens after you forge it is you have to do something called annealing, and uh, the annealing is to make it soft to work and get rid of some of the stresses. So you're going to anneal it, and annealing it, you're going to take it up to a fairly high temperature, like uh, somewhere like 1450 or so Fahrenheit, and you're going to hold it there for a while, and you're going to cool it very, very, very slowly. And what that's going to do is it's going to bring the metal into a very soft state that's easily worked, and I think it also gets rid of some of the stress. And that is so that you can do the kind of the uh, grinding and to get it down to almost finished except for the actual edge itself, you want to get it down because if you look at the picture that you have of the blank, it has like a, a lot of forging marks in it that you can still see in the, in the, in the picture. After you do that – Right now, you have to harden the guy. So you have to you're gonna you're gonna anneal it. Then you're gonna do uh, kind of whatever uh, work you're gonna do on it. Then you might do something called uh, normalization, which is another thing similar to annealing, but not quite as uh, not quite as slow a cooling. The reason you cool it slowly is when you heat the steel up to a high temperature, uh, <laughs> you um, change the state of the metal. It goes from being you know, a, a mix of whatever it happens to be in whatever state it is, 
partially probably hardened from working, partially not, in, uh, into kind of an austenitic state, which is a non-magnetic state. And then if you cool it very slowly, it forms into uh, you know, a very soft structure, whereas if you cool it very quickly, you know, a portion of it, hopefully a large portion of it, turns to martensite, which is a lot harder, which is you know, hard steel. So, uh, so anywho, so you want to cool it uh, not as slowly as annealing, but uh, relatively slowly uh, to kind of uh, you know, produce a finer grain structure and get rid of any um, kind of imperfections in it that might cause problems with the, with the um, with the hardening, which you're about to do. Now, I don't know whether that step's fully necessary or not, but a lot of people seem to recommend it. Then you're going to uh, heat it up again to that same high temperature and then quench it like a mother in oil very quickly so that uh, the metal does not have the time to uh, <coughs> to go into its softer state. Instead, it's frozen in the harder martensitic state, right? Does that make sense? Then it's really shattering. like It's going to be shattered brittle like glass. So then you need to take it and heat it up again to a tempering stage, which is a lower temperature. That you know, is much easier to accomplish because the other temperatures are like 1,450, that kind of thing. You need a real like a, kind of a forge or a kiln to do that, right? The other one is a little bit lower. is a tempering thing. That can be done kind of more reasonable uh, uh, steps. So you do that to kind of make it not as brittle. And so you temper it maybe once, maybe twice, depending on who you listen to, uh, and there you have your blade. After you temper it, then you have to put uh, uh, scales on it, right? You know, um, wooden parts, right? You don't have to use wood. You could use whatever you want. Like a lot of people use uh, uh, like phenolic compounds or bone or whatever you want and rivet it down, sand down the, uh, sand down the uh, handle so it's nice, and then put your final uh, polish and your uh, edge on it. So in other words, to, to put it in, you know, to put it this way, it's a lot of freaking work. And to have someone do a one-off custom job on something like this is going to cost a lot of money, like much more than just going and buying a high-quality old Sabatier uh, chef's knife. At least I would charge a lot you know, if I was going to do something like that. And that's probably one of the reasons why the custom knife maker that you, uh, that you dealt with was like, why would I do that? I'm a custom knife maker. I want to make my own knives. I don't want to do that to this other knife. Now, they're probably being a little bit of a jerk about it because everyone's, everyone who does something like that for a living, like including myself, like when someone's like wants, someone comes to me and wants me to make somebody else's cocktail, I'm like, why would I do that? That's ridiculous. You know what I mean? But so everyone who does this stuff for a living, like they're kind of jerks, but and they're kind of not understanding towards someone who's not directly on the inside of their business. But that's just the nature of someone who cares about what they do. I mean the problem is it's going to be hard to find someone who cares about what they do who is willing to do it for a reasonable price and who doesn't care about the whole process in general. Does that make sense to us? Mm-hmm. So anyway, so I think you've bitten off quite a bit, but I think it's a really interesting project. If you go on Kitchen Knife Forums – uh, there's a guy there named Devin Thomas who's a very famous maker. I've never touched one of his knives, but they're you know a chef's knife from Devin Thomas is upwards of like fifteen hundred bucks if you can get it because they're made one off, they're custom, and he's a maker of crazy, crazy pattern Damascus style steels that he makes himself, both stainless and carbon Damascus steels. And uh, he wrote in that he bought one like twenty years ago from the same guy and made a ni- uh, knife with it. And this is what he says to do: should you find someone who's willing to do it. Um, he says, uh, anneal at 1,450 for uh, one hour, drop the temperature to 1,275 for four hours, and then cool in the furnace. Uh, to harden it, soak uh, at roughly uh, 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit for uh, 10 minutes, and then quench in oil, and then temper immediately for one hour uh, between 350 and 400 degrees uh, Fahrenheit uh, one or two times. Uh, one time for more toughness. Sorry, one, one, uh, 
two times for more toughness and one hour for more wear resistance, i.e. longer keeping edge. Uh, but that is not something that the average person, I think, could do. Uh, although I have to say, I love the old Sabatier knives. I love them. Anyway, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Devin Thomas. You should go take a look at his knives, by the way. I mean, I, I looked. He, you, can't even, you can't buy them. It's crazy. Like, I, just don't, I think maybe Matt from, uh, from uh, Chef Matt from uh, uh, Sambar might have one because he's kind of a knife nut. Anyway. All right. Uh, should we take a, uh, should take a quick break? Sure. All right, let's take a quick break. Come back with more cooking issues. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. And we're back. Uh, so that's interesting. We're, uh, we're being hosted by the parent company today, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah? They, uh, they got some pretty good pork over there. Yeah? I didn't know we were the largest um, distributor of heritage... Uh, Pigs and turkeys. Heritage breed, yeah. But are we we are not the distributor of the largest breeds of pigs and turkeys, as far no, as I know. No. The opposite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the turkey the turkeys are delicious. Anyone who's had one knows this, but they're not like the the jacked up like you know, super like gym going birds that, that They're athletic that, birds. They fly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, uh, I forget how much they weigh. What, what styles? How much did they weigh at Thanksgiving time? Do you remember? No, I don't remember. But they were, like, they were like on the – more like on the 15-pound side, right? Yeah, that's more common. Yeah, not on, like, the 25-pound, like, mo- mo- like monster like turkey. 18, 19 is as big as you're getting with those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we should figure out, like, how to get the – like, I'm sure they could grow some sort of, like, a giant mega heritage breed turkey if they wanted to. Wow! Only only you could find out. Ah, we can do it. We, of course, the heritage breed pigs will grow bigger. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you let them live longer. You know the advantage of letting the pigs live longer. Well, it depends on what you want, right? I mean, like we slaughter our animals so young, uh, typically here in the U.S., which is one of the reasons. If you go back and you read uh, "Dry Cured Meat Products" by Fidel Tolzer, which, by the way, I don't recommend. It's not a very scintillating read. I mean, it's good from an informational standpoint. I'm sure it's horribly out of date. And Fidel Tolzer has written other books since this one, which was written, I think, in the in the late '90s. And I own it. It's like a technical book, boring. I mean, it's not boring. It's it's boring. I mean, like Stas, you would find it intensely boring. But it has information in it that I'm glad I have in my head now. One of those pieces of information is that the uh, muscular enzyme uh, makeup of an animal is dependent on its age. And that for dry cured, long aged dry cured meat products, the uh, enzyme balance or the enzyme makeup rather in uh, older hogs is more conducive to uh, creating a higher quality long age product. In addition, the meat from uh, older hogs or older animals in general tastes incredibly different. Now, uh, Jeffrey Steingarten, who by the way, like wants to get in touch with us, but then I, he w- w- didn't call us back. I haven't talked to Jeffrey in a long time, but Jeffrey, so here's two different styles, right, of thought. So you got your Harold McGee and your Jeffrey Steingarten. 
both of whom went to Spain to uh, taste very old meats. Like, so there's a bunch of restaurants in Spain that specialize in, uh, you know, you know, cooking older animals, like seven-year-old cows, things like this. Uh, you know, older things that we don't get here in the U.S. I think, and I think even older, you know, mutton, very aged mutton, things like this. So McGee, this is like Stasnos. McGee is like just explaining like kind of how awesome it is, and like maybe I can, you know. How can I get it? Blah, 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 blah. And Steingard is just rubbing in my face that he got to have this awesome stuff that I can't have. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Steingard loves this. Loves. It's like Steingarten, you know, was invited to uh, one of the Ortolan dinners that they had. Uh, maybe, maybe they did. Maybe they didn't have it at. Uh, I think at Le Cirque, and also maybe once at Danielle back in like the 90s. And rubs in my face all the time that he's had the Ortolan. I'm like, how was it? He's like, delicious. <laughs> Because he doesn't care that I can't have it. You know what I mean? Or I, sh- I shouldn't say he doesn't care. He revels in the fact that I want it and can't have it, I think. Which is not to say he's mean. He just likes a good – he likes a good nose rub. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, I owe him a call. Anywho. Okay. Uh, what, was, what was I talking about? Oh, Fidel Toldra. So the age of the animal also not only from the enzyme standpoint but the actual flavor of the muscle is going to be different. I don't have any personal experience uh, on that. Uh, but all the data shows uh, that – or at least the data from the late 90s shows that um, older pigs equal better pigs from a ham standpoint. I'm talking about curing hams, long, long-term age products. I don't know. Whatever. That's neither here nor there. Okay. Uh, hi, Dave. This is from Sam. Hi, Dave. Can you talk a little bit about your philosophy of dishes and flatware? I don't think you've ever talked in depth about the subject on the air, uh, Sam. Well, that's interesting. You know, uh, most chefs who um, cook food for a living, they care extremely uh, deeply about their – both the the plates. I think mostly about the plates, right? Uh, or not, not just plates. Plates, all serviceware. And then probably uh, after that about the um, about the the flatware, and I think that there's kind of you know at home it's a lot it's a lot different. If you're going to go uh, professional, right, especially in like a super high end restaurant, in a low end restaurant, you just need something that's going to show off the show off the food well, right? So you go with something simple. But a lot of high end restaurants, like you know what, like Mark has how many different kinds of uh, things at Del Posto? That time. Yeah, but you know the thing is like the cost investment because you, it, it, at a high end restaurant, the 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 service, the the plates that you have need to be of a quality that you're like you're not like man, this is thick and crappy. I could have this in my own house, and it's not a big you know what I mean. Like it needs to have a certain level of kind of quality and, and panache, but it needs to be tough enough to not get totally banged up, or else the costs are going to go through the roof because each one of these plates cost. Do you remember he was saying how much some of those plates cost? Yeah, like those ones we shattered at our event. We shattered at the MoFat event a couple of years ago. We shattered probably how many? Uh, like 15. 15 or 20. And they're probably like $75 plates or something like that. Yeah. $80 anyway. Um, so, you know, if you're going to have something for a long time, you have it. But then, you, you know, bringing a new plate in, you have to think about how many different dishes am I going to get out of this plate, right? So, like, I've been to restaurants, and I won't name any names, but they're like, I really like this weird plate, right? And then because they invested in this weird plate, I get this plate three or four times during the meal on a large course-out meal on a tasting plate, uh, you know, on a tasting menu, and you're like, enough with the crazy plate, you know what I mean? Enough, you know what I'm saying, Stas? Have you ever had that happen? Where, like, someone, like, they buy that, like, I don't know, it's shaped like a wave or, like, some sort of a crazy oval, and then they bust it out, like, three and four times because they kind of need to. 
Yeah, no, I haven't had that. Yeah. I mean the flip side of this is if you have a tasting uh, – look, so you can either go on a tasting. Some people do the almost entirely one plate, right? And then the plate's blank canvas. And then you have to choose a plate that you like that fits your style, typically white, thin, beautiful, right? And then you're going to need another one that is um, slightly dished. Like maybe you get a charger that's slightly dished. That way if you serve something that's not a full-on soup but is brothy and you don't want with a wide lip, that something can go into it. Right then, you need some form of soup. Usually, you know, I would go for a wide soup because you go wide soup, you can do a lot more than you can do thin. It's more elegant to have like a wide soup than a thin soup, right? Wouldn't you say, Stas? And then, if you want to salt and pepper it, that's when you pull out the, like the cheap dish. That's where you go to Chinatown. You go and you buy like you know the less expensive stuff in the pretty colors, like the ceramics that don't cost an arm and a leg, and you can kind of buy on a lark and switch out for a, a plating thing here or there. Or switch up if you have something weird into sake cups and other things that are, uh, you know, that are less, uh, you know, less expensive. So, I mean, <clears throat> if you had to, and even at home, I would say, and this is what I've done: is you invest in, you invest in a, a good, uh, very kind of neutral, but you know, beautiful, like basic set that allows you to do chargers, that allows you to do normal plated stuff, smaller stuff like bread and butters, you know, B and B plates, and uh, you know, maybe like. Uh, you know, a, a more wide flat soup and then a, a regular soup bowl and then just buy a bunch of weird weird stuff that you do for one-offs like for events and parties and stuff. What do you think? you agree with that? Mm-hmm. On the on – I mean like you know, the, the exact opposite extreme of this is Grand Acres at Alinea. If you've ever eaten at Alinea, you ever eat there? No. I've eaten there a couple of times and it's like all customized hyper stuff, uh, you know, hyper customized different things. But you know, I think that's very difficult for the average person to a pay for and b to support in their in their kind of restaurant. I mean, like he has dishes, he has dishes that are built for dishes. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. you know, does that make sense? What I'm saying, dishes built for dishes, for specific dishes, pieces of ceramic things to eat dishes off. Anyway, you know what I'm saying. Um, flatware, you know, I love uh, I love flatware, uh, but I don't. Th- I you know I don't think about having like lots of tons of different kinds of flatware. I'm not a giant fan. I am when I go to the old school like French places. Do you like going to old school French yeah. restaurants? I love it. You know, if there was a time when I you know I don't know I went to a bunch of them in a row and I was like, but then and I, you know I kind of lost the kind of love for it. But then you know I remember once uh, years and years ago I hadn't been to an old school French restaurant in a long time and I went to Danielle uh, and I had the like the whole the full on old school Danielle. French, like nothing new, like nothing that had been kind of invented as a technique, you know, after Escoffier. Like they just busted out all, except for it was Dominique Ancel was the pastry chef at the time, so there was newer stuff there. But I mean, like really old school French stuff. And I was like, this is awesome. You know what I mean? This is like super awesome. And then they they, they bring out the fish fork. Do you like the fish fork with the little notch in it? So for that kind of stuff, I like that. And normally, I'm like, you know, I just want some normal, like good quality. Flatware. I don't like a lot of weird handles. I hate the weird handle. I hate anything that feels weird in my hand. I like. I want the. I want the fork and the knife to be like a sensual extension of my body, and I don't want any sort of weirdness there. What about you, Stas? I like the fancy flatware. No, but do you like weird handle? Oh yeah. Really? Yeah. I hate a weird handle. I hate a thin what handle. If you're doing a thing. Well, yeah. if you're doing a thing. I mean, what, what, like, what kind of a thing? Like French thing, or oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, like, you know, a high quality hand. Like, you don't want. You ever been have one of those things where someone makes like a handle and it's like a like a wire almost, and it's like this weird created handle, and you're like when you're holding it, it doesn't feel substantial. 
No. So my wife designed flatware for a while, and uh, this uh, one of these like salty. You know how there's like every every business has these salty old guys. He was like. They, we got the prototypes back, and Jen was looking at them. And the guy was like, hey, yeah, uh, those are nice, but they're never going to sell. And Jen was like, why not? He's like, they're just not heavy enough. It doesn't even – he's like – literally, he's like, it doesn't matter what it looks like. Put the sucker on a scale, and if the knife and fork don't weigh X amount, they will not sell. Like so you know, she beefed it up a little bit so that the weight was right. But if you hold something thin or light in your hands, you're like, this is not a satisfying uh, implement. So, you know, I think – and ever since then, I was like, you know, damn, this crusty old dude's right. And, you know, I feel for heft in my hand. So I, I like a good heft mm-hmm. in my flatware. Now, drinkware, it, like, you know, also at the bar, if you've ever been to Booker and Dax, we don't really stock uh, lots of, like, loony, loony toony uh, glassware, you know. Um, I'm a kind of a believer in – Getting a relatively small number of glasses and and you know just going that way, but, you know. But bar is a little bit different. So you could invest in a boatload of different weird things, but in general, all of the drinks are designed around certain volumes anyway. And so unless you bring in a whole new category of drinks, like when we brought in the red hot poker drinks, well, we're like, okay, now we need a coffee cup. We don't stock like five different coffee cups for each different kind of um, drink. You know what I mean? Each different um, red hot poker drink, or you know, most shaken drinks fit in either a coupe glass or the two thirds coupe glass, and so that's all we have. You know, and uh, it hasn't really served uh, a purpose for us to have a zillion. In fact, we don't even have highball glasses because we don't do that kind of drink. I kept I keep on telling the bartenders though, I'll buy the highball glasses if they can make a drink that's uh, that forces me to buy them. You like highballs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. What do you think of like the cocktail in a mason jar thing? What do I think of the cocktail in a mason jar thing? Uh, I, look, I'm going to piss some people off. Mason jars are not particularly pleasant to drink out of because the lip of them is really, really thick. Uh, and the only really reason to have a thick-rimmed glass is like a coffee mug or something like that that you kind of want your lips to be around and you want the mass of the of the of the glass to provide some sort of either cooling and or warming property to it. Uh, in general, I favor glasses with thin rims. So, you know, coupes have thin rims. Um, you know, old-fashioned glasses have thin rims. And in fact, the thinner the rim, the more I enjoy drinking out of it, as long as the glass itself has enough weight. So I like, you know, like on an old-fashioned, I think it's nice to have, uh, you know, not an, a preposterously thick bottom, but a fairly thick bottom and a fairly thin thin uh, lip so mason jars have screw lids on the top and so are always uh beefy um and they also i think tend to kind of obscure kind of the cocktail on the inside now for a theme event i think they're fine or like you know for like uh if you're going to have a lot of ice in it in a, in a drink i think it's kind of okay as long as you pre-chill it but i never i never reach for them that makes sense what do you think stuz I agree. What do you think, Jack? Yeah, you, you disagree I, with me? I can't stand them, actually. Wow. I mean, like, if it's a cold lemonade with a lot of ice and a straw, maybe, I guess. But I agree with you. It's not a pleasant thing to drink out of. Yeah, you but know, you're putting us like, in, in a tough spot. Don't they use those here at Roberta's? Uh, I wasn't going to make mention of that. Yeah. See, I thought you were just trying to get me in trouble over here. I, I wasn't going to mention that. Yeah. But, well, I mean, you know, think of, like, a pint glass versus a mason jar for a beer. Well, I'd rather have a, yeah. I'd rather a pint in every, a day. Every time, yeah. I actually I like pint glasses. They're, that's like the thickest rim that I like drinking something out of is a pint glass, and I like them because they're sturdy. And when you put a pint glass down, you're not like, 
I'm afraid I'm going to break this sucker. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But you're also not like, why am I, why am I, you know, drinking out of uh, out of an iPad? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, mason jar is like so thick. It's like the thickness of a freaking iPad. That wasn't meant to be a dig at any one place. I mean, you know, a lot of places do that. I know. I, uh, you know, and then like the worst of all, I'm really going to get in trouble. I mean, look, here's the thing. Like, any one of you out here, out there. If you use it, I'm sure you can do something to pull it off, right? I mean, like, anything can be pulled off. Like, stuff that normally I would hate. How many times, Styles, have you heard me say, man, I thought I was going to hate that crap, but it was good? A lot. A lot, right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm an opinionated guy, and I go, but, like, have you seen these people who, like, put mason jars on stems? Oh, man, yeah, I've seen that. Why the hell would you do that? I don't know. Why would you do that? Here's another thing. Like, let's say you had a drink that you uh, were somehow, I don't know, going to gonna. gonna package and sell to somebody then maybe it'd be fun to have a jelly jar or like a or a mason jar because you could actually like it would look like a canned thing that you could buy and you could buy it in a store that might be fun you know what i mean i don't know whatever you're getting me in trouble jack jesus no jesus all right uh dear dave at all i was intrigued by your recipe for pressure cooked eggs which i found on the cooking issues blog but i've had some trouble actually making it when i squeeze the egg whites out in uh into the ramekin some of the yolks float up to the top instead of a neatly divided muffin as you seem uh to do to get i get a spongy mass with pockets of egg white in it any ideas uh what i might be doing wrong also should i be putting uh, in some water at the bottom of the pressure cooker or not thanks and keep it the good work uh good work alex okay alex when I press, there's a couple different pressure cooking tricks I do uh, with eggs. The the ones where they turn uh, brown, where it's like a hameen egg, the uh, which you should all, by the way, you know, anyone who's listening to this, they they own on food cooking, right? Pretty much, anyone, right? If not, if you don't, I'm not calling you out. You shouldn't like feel embarrassed. You should just go on uh, uh, to your local bookstore, or if you don't go to your local bookstore, go to Amazon and purchase Harold McGee's book on food and cooking, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, in that book, uh, he describes uh, something called a hameen egg. And a hameen egg uh, is an egg. So like uh, – you know, I've described this on the show a couple times, but I'll do it again. Uh, let's say uh, you're, you're, you can't – let's say that you uh, observe kosher laws. You're not allowed to uh, cook uh, on the Sabbath. So you have a large oven in, the, in, a, in a village environment, let's say, and the oven has retained heat. So you put all of your stuff in there. The night before, uh, including eggs, into a stew, and it cooks for uh, you know for a long, long period of time uh, at a relatively you know decent temperature. And as it cools off, it goes. Now those eggs, so-called hamin eggs, they turn brown not simply from absorbing flavors, but because uh, egg whites are alkaline. And the more alkaline you make something, the lower temperature uh, you need for Maillard reactions to take place. So. Even at the you know at, at boiling water temperatures, you can get Maillard reactions in an egg white if you cook it for a long time. What's a long time? Twelve, uh, you know, eighteen, twenty-four, forty-eight hours. So I've cooked eggs at uh, you know at simmer and boiling temperatures for that length of time, and indeed they do turn brown. Uh, and not only do they turn brown, they get uh, interesting kind of brown flavors, biscuity notes and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, back when uh, Nils and I were at the French Culinary, you know, one of the things we said, well, why don't we accelerate this with a pressure cooker? And, and you cook the eggs and you put them in a pressure cooker and they come out within an hour. They're like a nut brown and the egg yolks smell like kind of chicken livers and the and the whites are brown. You got to be uh, – but but here's the trick and I think here's the, here's the thing. When I do that kind of an egg – I do not uh, 
crack them before I cook them. I cook them in the shell. And not only do I cook them in the shell, but I cook them uh, at a simmer for a good uh, six, seven minutes before I put the pressure lid on and take the pressure up to um, – to full pressure, and the reason is is that uh, I want that if, if I do it the other way, uh, I get too many ruptured uh, eggs, right? So you want them to set before you uh, before you take the pressure way up. Now the other thing is is that if uh, uh, one of these eggs, the shell does break, it leaches the brown color and the flavor out of the egg into the water because those Maillard products are water soluble, and so you you want to make sure you keep the shell on when you do that. You cook it for about forty five. Let me sorry, yeah, forty five minutes to an hour. Uh, at second ring, which is 15 psi, and then you let it cool slowly. Don't uncap it all of a sudden because then you, the eggs will blow up on the inside, right? So you let it cool down, you open it, and then uh, you have your your hamine eggs, and they're great. Now, the other kinds of eggs that uh, I do when I'm doing in the pressure cooker, I separate them before uh, I do them, right? So I do. Um, I can do egg yolks in the in the in the pressure cooker, and I can do egg whites in the pressure cooker. But I never cook them at the same time together. I separate them. Now the yolks, I was trying. I can never get the yolks uh, by themselves in the pressure cooker to taste the way that they do in uh, a hameen pressure cooked egg. They never get that chicken giblet flavor. But the trick that I do have with it when I made those muffin things is that by adding a small amount of baking powder which is, again, a mistake. I wanted to add soda to it because I wanted to make it more alkaline so that it would have some of those same flavors that it gets when it cooks in the egg itself. But uh, the person I told to go run the test for me put in a powder instead, and the actual yolk turns into that muffin thing, which is one of the things I did on the blog. And then I later found out – and that's in Modernist Cuisine as well. I later found out that uh, you don't even need the pressure cooker. You can just mix egg yolks, sugar for flavor, and baking powder and then steam it in a regular oven, and it turns into a bun. And the amount of baking powder you add changes the texture from something that's very kind of dense and cakey to something that's very kind of hamburger bunny. And and um, they're they're good. Like they, you need to get it just right. Like I like it when there's a little bit of soy and a little bit of sugar in it. Uh, but some people really like them, and some people really don't like them. Those things. Uh, and then the whites will brown. You know, you make the brown. But you, I've never, as far as I know, I got to go back and look at the cooking issues blog. But I don't think I ever cook them together. And there's no way I could ever get a yolk to float in the middle of it. That just wouldn't work, right? Right. Right. Okay. So, does that answer that question? Mm-hmm. Pressure cooked eggs. We haven't done that in a while, have we? Not that I remember. No. So I was like, but, but on the other hand, I wouldn't remember because I don't care. <laughs> you, know, you know as well as I do. No, but I, no, it's the thing. Like, I mean, I, I think I've done it at home a couple years. times, but we've never done it for yeah. – never done it – I haven't done it at an event in a long time. People haven't asked us to do a lot of cooking events. But people mainly ask for cocktail events now. Yeah. Didn't we do a cooking event recently or we did a cooking demo recently? With the Searsall, now that the Searsall is coming out, hopefully people are going to ask for more cooking demos again. Yeah. What do you like better, the cooking demos or the cocktail demos? Cocktail demos. Why? Because they're easier? Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Well, that's honest anyway. I miss doing the cooking demos. You know what I mean? Got to keep your chops up. more hectic, yeah. Well, because in cooking demos, I'm usually doing like 18 different recipes and pissing everybody off, adding things at the end, where with cocktails, there's only a certain amount of work you can add. Right? Yes. All right. Uh, wow. And that was uh, – I can't believe it. We just got through – we got oh, through wow. all the questions. Well, actually, we got, a, we got a question in on uh, Twitter. Fan of Albert, not Fat Albert, which is one of my kids' favorite shows. Do you like Fat Albert? Mm-hmm. Really? I can't imagine you watching Fat Albert. Well, not anymore. But when you were a kid, you did? Yeah. Who's your favorite character? I don't remember. You don't remember the characters? Mm-hmm. Do you like Mushmouth? Yeah. 
Yeah? Mubbish mm-hmm. Malbeth? <laughs> yeah, he was good, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, the movie, uh, I like some of the actors in it. The movie, terrible. You seen it? Oh, I'm sure, no. Terrible. Terrible. Anyway, uh, so fan of Albert, not fat Albert, uh, wanted to know why there's not a problem when you freeze French fries before you cook them. Because he's saying, doesn't, when you freeze them, wouldn't you get a lot of retrogradation in the French fry? And, and that would ruin it, right? Uh, and then saying, well, maybe um, increased water loss for increased crunchiness is why it's, why it's good. Well, let me just maybe put some stuff out on the table here from straight things. So first of all, starch retrogradation is what happens. So when you cook a starch out, right, uh, it loses its crystalline form and turns into uh, what they call an amorphous form, right? And then – and that's a cooked starch product, bread, pasta, whatever, right? Right? And that's how it goes from being a, a crystallizing to a not crystallizing. It loses its crystal structure. Retrogradation is what happens when over time the uh, starch recrystallizes. And that's one of the pri- – and also at the same time gives up water. So recrystallizes and gives up water. And though that is the primary mechanism for bread going stale. Right, and for all kind of starch things, stale, staling things going stale that way, like potatoes going stale, starch retrogradation. You hate that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, starch retrogradation is actually halted by not halted, but drastically slowed by freezing. However, so it, you're not retrograding when you're at, at a tremendous rate when you're in the freezer. Here's the trick. As you so – starch retrogradation is fastest, right, at refrigerator temperatures. That's why if anyone ever puts uh, bread in the fridge, you, uh, you should – I mean I wouldn't smack them hard. Don't hurt them. But make them understand that, you know, that bread in the fridge is a horrible idea. Do you ever put bread in the fridge, Stas? No. Are you saying that because you don't want me to get angry? No. I have friends that do it though. What, what do you do to them? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing? They do a lot of things bad, but I don't... Like what? Them. Give me some more. They don't take the bones out of fish. They shop for food at Walmart. All kinds of stuff. Wow. You need some new friends. Man, I like most of your friends, but like, why I don't like you them yell at for them? for other reasons. Because I don't like being that person that brings their job into their friendship. That's not a job. That's like life. Like, they don't li- tell me about like classical music or fashion or all the things that they do. We just leave it out. I don't know. I don't like. We at least have some people comment on this. Like, if someone does something that is like a straight up destructor of quality, that's easily solved. Like, if someone if someone throws tomatoes in the fridge, right? Fresh tomatoes in the fridge. You're not like, hey, it doesn't really. You wouldn't. Here's how. If they're cooking now, or if they've already brought you the tomato that they refrigerated, there's not much you can say because you don't want to insult them, right? But. If, like, you see the tomato in the fridge and they're not going to cook it that night anyway, you take it and be like, you know what? You're, you know, you spent good money on this tomato and you're kind of, like, hosing it by putting it in the, in the fridge. Just thought you might want to know. You know what I mean? No? You wouldn't do that? No, I wouldn't do it. But th- you're making them better. You're not hurting their feelings. You're not being a jackass. Jack, what do you think about this? Is it okay? Left. He left. <laughs> Is it okay to help someone out? It's not okay to help someone out? You're like, hey, you, your bread will keep longer if you take it out of the fridge. No? I had that happen last night. I, the girl brought the bread out of the fridge. Oh, Jesus. How bad was it? She uh, toasted it. Oh. Well, that's the good news. So if you have bread that's staled, you can toast it. Uh, and as it warms, uh, the, it will get better again. But then as soon as it's cold, it's death. It's a nightmare. The, it's only good then for breadcrumbs or for rusks. Do you like the word rusk? Mm-hmm. 
I was surprised. I like the word Rusk mm-hmm. too. Anyway, so um, starch retrogradation happens uh, most rapidly uh, at fridge temperatures and slightly below fridge temperatures, but uh, not at freezer temperatures, right? So freeze, freezer temperature is going to be somewhere around minus 20 Celsius, around minus 4 Fahrenheit. At those places, it's pretty, uh, pretty slowed. But the freezing rate is uh, incredibly uh, important. So if it takes you a billion years to freeze something – Right then, uh, then you get a lot of retrogradation during the freezing process. You also get a lot of retrogradation during the thawing process, which is why if you're going to make French fries that are frozen, right, you want to freeze them relatively quickly, right, and by f- not super quickly. If you freeze it with liquid nitrogen quickly, you're not going to get the dehydration phenomenon. So one of the reasons, and this you alluded to this in your question, that French fries when they're frozen are crunchy is because freezing is a, a cellular uh, can be looked at as a cellular dehydration process. Because the ice crystals aren't forming on the inside typically of the cells of the plants or, or meats that you're freezing. The water is extracted from the cells and frozen extracellularly, the vast majority of it, unless you freeze with liquid nitrogen super quickly. And you can get like you know a very quick uh, nucleation of, of, of crystals inside the cell. But that typically doesn't happen. So um, what's happening is, is that the water is getting squeezed out and then when you fry it – Right, that water is more easily uh, liberated from the French fry, hence crunchier fry. However, you're also getting rid of a lot, so you can get a kind of what we call a hollow inside. Do you like the hollow? You don't like French fries, whatever. I'm not going to talk to you, but like a hollow inside or a hollow core, which I don't really like. I don't really like hollow core fries. I like I like the ins. My goal is to have the inside of the fry be like a mashed potato, and the outside of the fry be crunchy but not hard. That's what I'm looking for. So, um. Freezing a fry has a similar effects to drying the fry before you do your initial uh, – so you blanch in boiling water or simmering you – know, boiling water, salted, and then you typically dry it and then first fry, second fry. Freezing has a similar effect to drying. However, the uh, freezing uh, – does uh, kind of more all the way through the fry instead of like drying, which is more of a surface phenomenon. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Anyways – Point being that uh, if you are going to so – uh, I know I'm jumping all over the map here. But from a bread standpoint, the general rule of thumb is that uh, every freeze cycle and thaw cycle that you put it through is equal to uh, – assuming you do it relatively quickly. And bread freezes relatively quickly because there's not that much water in it, right? So it, it does freeze relatively quickly. It just doesn't have that high of a thermal mass, right? French fries have a higher thermal mass because they have more residual water in them before the second fry. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Anyways, so uh, the rule of thumb that I've read is that every freeze-thaw cycle in, that you put it through is like an entire day of staling. So if you're going to freeze bread, freeze it right now. Like as soon as you say – as soon as you bring the bread home and you're like, damn, I'm not going to use this thing in time, freeze it right now because the freeze-thaw cycle just by itself is like eating it the next day. Right? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So uh, – and this is why – and you're losing on both sides, on both the thawing side and the freezing side. You're losing as the bread is spending time in that hyper-retrogradation uh, – retrograding stage of just below fridge temp to just above fridge temp. The rule of thumb that I read is about minus 8 to about, mi- to about plus 8 Fahrenheit uh, Celsius in that region, right? So – uh, you want to minimize the amount of time that your uh, products stay in that zone, which is why the cardinal rule with French fries done this way is fry from frozen, right? Mm-hmm. Fry those suckers from frozen and don't go through repeated freeze-thaw cycles. If you go through repeated freeze-thaw cycles, you're an enemy of quality. 
And that's all we got this week. If you uh, live here in uh, New York, stay safe. Don't slip on the way home. Cooking issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.